Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. So, shuffle papers. Uh, okay, what was it? It was, it was uh, atomic power on, power to turbines. Do you know what that's from? Atomic power on, power to turbines. You have to tell me. Sorry, it was um, it was the TV show Batman. Really, at the beginning, before the da na 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 that bit, you'd have. I should know that. I Batman watched that obsessively and... as a kid, but it's not ringing a bell. How weird. Okay, but then people are now going to you know tell me that I'm wrong. No, no, no. You you'll be right. I mean, this is this was when I was well, five I'm... years old, so I'm sure I'm, you know <laughs> not remembering this script in detail. Yeah, I kind of you know those are the good old days of Batman. You knew where you were with Batman in those days. Um. See, if Ben Affleck had played it Adam West style, just imagine. Yeah, yeah I, that's I, the new take on Batman this world needs. Do you know the bat? The bat? Not someone who's going around with a shotgun driving over people's heads in the Batmobile. That's just kind of wrong. And yeah, and and hitting tires. I mean, it's kind of like you know. It's anyway. Anyway, we're, we're all into that. Anyway, I think the podcast has started. Right. Okay. Okay. Great. Hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Robbie Collin and Sanju Pascar uh, sitting in while um, we're, because we're officially still part of the Easter Hall. So Mark and Simon are out, uh, no doubt, recruiting for the uh, for the cruise. Um, but I've got a podcast here which relates to you, Robbie, if I may. Right. All. Um, dear Robbie and Sanju, I'm an LTL, FTE and infrequent CG. Normally just a podcast listener. But after your impassioned call for second bassoonists... Oh, here we go. See here we go. Now we're I was cooking. compelled, okay. and in brackets, but not by the power of Christ, which is useful to know. It gives us a context. To get in touch, as a former second bassoon in the Northamptonshire County Youth Orchestra between 1999 and 2003, Robbie's account of the life of the bassoonist certainly sounded familiar with how's the oboe, asides, and bassoon, buffoon, baboon, digs. In truth, the bassoon is a wonderfully versatile instrument with far more exciting music than the umpiring some would expect. With real moments to shine in an orchestra and Smokey Robinson's Tears of a Clown, perhaps it's time to introduce a bassoonist's bower into the church or a searchable bassoonist's category into the Witter app, which apparently... Which is three dots has nothing to on the do. entire planet. <laughs> Um, the Witter app, which apparently has nothing to do with anything or anybody. I believe that's true. That's from Dr. Stephen Davison. B Music, Ons Grad, RNCM, M Muse, D Muse, RCM. Presumably that's Royal College of Music, is it? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm guessing by all these letters, this guy could seriously out bassoon. I think he knows his bassoons. Yeah. Either, I, I, I bet he's even fiddled with a contra bassoon in his time. Do you the, fiddle a bassoon? Is that how you play it? Well, the thing is with you know, I, I, I um, had another message on Twitter actually from another second bassoonist, Mike Smith, um, who played in the Strathclyde Schools Orchestra between 1986 and 1987. And he pointed out that, you know, despite this kind of slightly, the political tensions between the first bassoon and the second bassoon, bassoonists uh, as a genre... Sorry, what are versus, the political tensions? Well, you know, you have the... There's one more lefty the, and more the, righty. The, the first bassoonist is kind of uh, in the employ of the man. You know, he's, he's working for the conductor and the second bassoonist, you know, he's not he's not in there. He's not, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid. He's a, he's a slight kind of mischievous outsider, kind of a Loki figure on the, the, the periphery of the orchestra. He's snuck in? I mean, no, I mean, you know, you qualify, you have to audition. Oh, right. But while you're there, you know, look out because a little bit of mischief might happen. But he, but what Mike said was that, you know, despite those tensions, bassoonists are generally quite avuncular people. And, you know, when, you're not talking about flautists. 
you know they, that's a, a separate kind of issue um well, what are they like attitude problem you don't want to don't get me started we've got a podcast to listen to but you know it's it's not that bad is what i'm trying to say no, you're going to have to give me some hint of what flautists are like. No, 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 honestly, like, honestly, no. So James no, Galway. We've not, we've not got the time. James Galway's one of them. Don't get me started on Galway. Oh, really? No, no, I've never met him. I've never, oh. I'm, sure he's, I'm sure he's delightful. That's Maybe it's a secondary school thing. Maybe if you're a teenage flautist, that's where the issue comes in. A teenage flautist? Okay. Uh, but now, you mentioned uh, bassoon mischief. Could you define in, well, in any way at all, that might be recognisable as words, what bassoon mischief is. Well, you might throw a bit of syncopation into the bass line or something, just get people doing a bit of this. This is a podcast no one can see, but I'm, I'm kind of swaying, um, you know. In a, in a, in a kind in of very way, syncopated yeah. way, actually. So is it the swaying or is it is it musical? Is it just that you move the bassoon from side to side a bit? Well, this is the thing, you know, it's an expressive instrument. You, it's got a physicality to it that a flute doesn't because you can do this... Boom, 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 boom. Okay. And you're moving I, like the, what the I imagine moving... a saxophonist moves like. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Okay. Bassoonists can do it too. And where do you sit? Where does the second bassoon sit on the stage? Really very, very far back. I mean, you know, you're, if, you're kind of in front of the gong. That's, that's sort of your, your typical position. Or maybe there'll be a trombone in your ear. But you're not, you know, you're not given pride of place in the orchestra. Occasionally behind the gong. <laughs> no, but... Never for me, thankfully, but it was, it was, it was getting and, there sometimes. And is there a third bassoonist? The third bassoonist would normally be the contrabassoon, which is the bassoon with the kind of extra U-bend on top. It's got a U-bend? It's like they've, they've taken a bassoon and tooled it up, and it goes even lower. Can you take... Have you played a, a, a contra? I've never played a contra. I would, okay. I would love to have a go. But can you, can you uh, assemble and disassemble a bassoon in the dark? Did you see um, a film George Clooney did called The American where he's this assassin working, I think it's in an Italian village, and there's a lot of loving shots of him screwing together a sniper rifle. And that is the bassoonist lot, basically, before a performance begins. You're there, you open your suitcase, there's all the parts, and you just methodically just this together, and then this together, and then soak the reed. It's a kind of a zen ritual, is what I'm trying to say, to get into that bassoonist mindset. Soak the reed, that's not... So a metaphor. The, I mean, that's an actual. Reed. That's a reed. Yeah, it's a, it's a proper um, double reed, um, and um, you know, clarinets would use as the saxophones use a single reed. Um, bassoonists, bassoons, and oboes use a double reed, and it, it's it's kind of um, how how to explain it. It's like a blade when you have a blade of grass and you you cut down the middle of it with your fingernail and blow through it, and the two sides of the grass vibrate together, thus creating a beautiful melodious tone. That's what a bassoon is on a kind of a grand scale. Who do the bassoonists want to be in an orchestra? Bassoonists are happy with who they are. Really? This they they feel playing, they're top of the tree. This idea that you're playing the bassoon because you're not good enough to play the saxophone is just Hey, I didn't a say myth. that. No. I didn't, did I say that? You didn't need to. It was there. It sounded a bit it there. It was there in your voice. And this idea is just a myth that needs to be dispelled because, my goodness, we're all sick of hearing it. <laughs> Should we just, we've kind of talked ourselves into a bit of a cul-de-sac here. We, we, I think... I maybe think, maybe let's just take five. <clears throat> let's take five. Uh, actually, let's take a bit longer and have the entire show. Hello, you. Welcome to the show. It's uh, Robbie and Sanjeev keeping the, the chairs warm, the chairs of Mark and Simon. Was that hello, you directed at me or was it directed at the listenership? At, Could have been. At, at Could have been. It's to anyone who found it meaningful. Obviously, you did. I did, yeah. It was quite well, good. It's hello, you. Hello, hello you. Hello, you. Um, yeah, a little bit carry on. Hello, <laughs> hello, you. It's kind of, anyway, we're going to go into Charles Hawtrey territory as he's not here uh, to defend himself this week. Uh, but this is the first time we've worked together. It is indeed, yes. Of, and uh, what a pleasure it is to meet you as well. I was really pleased to see, and, and, and likewise, likewise, I was really delighted that um, 
because I was on last week uh, with, with, with Ben Baby Smith and I was delighted. He did a fine job. He was terrific. He was fantastic. And I, I was delighted that on Twitter I was, um, my return was billed as acceptable. So, you know, here I am, you know, back through sheer force of adequacy. <laughs> there are a lot of people uh, in this world who'd be very happy with adequate, by the way. <laughs> and you're looking at one right now. Um, now, you are, uh, obviously, you're be- beginning to get known as Robbie Second Bassoon. Colin. Yes. As well. Well, uh, that was a previous identity to film critic. You know, I was bassooning before I was... Um, professional. Film critic. No, 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 no. I mean, as, that, oh. as a child. Right. Um, and that was obviously before, you know, I was being paid to watch films, which was, uh, and you know, both kind of um, fun, interesting ways to spend your life, I suppose. But then the films took over from the bassoon. The bassoon fell by the wayside. But in mentioning the bassoon on here, you know, I've been really, it's been very galvanising when people have got in touch to say that, you know, there's some... Um, They've, they've been second bassoonists too. They can understand where I'm coming from because, you know, it's, it's a very particular role in the orchestra, the second bassoon. And uh, not many people understand it, so I'm glad to, be, to have helped to raise awareness, I suppose is what I'm saying. Do you still play the bassoon in anger? <laughs> no, Did not, you ever play it? Can you play a bassoon in anger? You can, but you need to kind of maintain the embouchure while you're doing so. So you can never just kind of... You can't shred a bassoon. The, so you know, you the can't... Embouchure. Can, embouchure. Your embouchure. The, um, embouchure. The mouth shape. Oh, like, okay. Imagine... Imagine you've why, got why a boiled egg. Why did you just say mouth shape? Well, is that a bassoonist? Know, it's a, it's a, it's you get, are you going all bassoonist on me? <laughs> I'm getting slightly too bassoony for more good. I think. <laughs> um, well, uh, other than more bassoon talk, um, it is uh, business as usual on the show with a bunch of movies to review, which will be included and perhaps not limited to. Yes, we're talking about The Huntsman, Winter's War, Midnight Special, Deepan, Boulevard, which was the last film that Robin Williams made before he died. Uh, the Man Who Knew Infinity and Nasty Baby. It's quite a lineup, And uh, yeah. our special guest is Emily Blunt, uh, whose new film, uh, you just mentioned, The Huntsman, Winter's War, is out this week. You can hear my conversation with her in about half an hour, uh, followed by Robbie's review of the movie. If you've seen it already or you just want to join in with the show, you can get in touch with us in all the usual ways. That's email mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can text on 85058. And you'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. Well, as we uh, uh, as we don't want to uh, uh, rock the boat too much, uh, we should kick off with the UK box office top ten. Yes, and uh, number ten, it's High Rise. Yeah, which I'm delighted is still hanging on for such a kind of a difficult and divisive film. The fact that it's been in the box office top ten for a number of weeks now is incredibly encouraging. I have to say, I think a large part of that is down to the uh, campaign that Studio Canal have run for the film. I mean, the, the posters for High Rise, I think, have been totally exceptional, you know, incredibly stylish. And in, in, in a world where you look at, um, you know, a lot of film posters are very homogenous and, and, and don't like taking risks, don't like setting a foot outside, you know, High Rise is sort of cast back to British cinema from the 70s and 80s to look for those kind of bolder um, visual designs that have really, I think, captured people's imagination. So I'm glad that people are going to see this film and I'm glad it's generating as much discussion as it, as it is doing. You know, it's, it's a film that is uh, a, a kind of a vision of the future that's mired in the past, that's talking about Britain right now, which is an incredibly difficult thing to pull off. And a director like Ben Wheatley, who is absolutely one of the most exciting British directors working today, uh, is the right person for this material. And I think as well, you know, it's it's just an ideal vehicle for Tom Hiddleston. I was just very pleased that you started a sentence with the words, in a world. <laughs> well, where... this is the thing, you know, if we're talking about cliched film advertising, there is no more cliched film phrase. Um, well, I've got a bit of correspondence here. This is from uh, Matthew Barber, who says, uh, Dear Robbie and Sanjeev, inspired both by Wittertainment and by St Mark Cousins, 
Uh, I've been negotiating a New Year's resolution to watch one interesting and non-Hollywood movie every day. I've happily ploughed my random way through amongst many others. Are you ready for this, Robbie? Go on. Bergman, Tarkovsky, Bresson, Ozu and Fellini. And I'm currently building up my strength for Bella Tarr. Two, does that, does <laughs> keep, that mean... Keep, that? keep building, my okay. wife. Yeah, OK, OK. <laughs> Two days before watching Ben Wheatley's High Rise, a gloriously stylish film that puts the brutal into brutalism, I watched The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, a Louis Buñuel movie from the 1970s that shares a lot of the subtexts and imagery of Wheatley's Mallard adaptation and has a similar tendency towards visceral and surrealist shocks. I'm wondering if this coincidence is a common one when so many films are experienced in such a short time or whether this is evidence for some kind of higher power controlling what I'm watching. Best wishes, Matt Barber. I think that's one for you, really. I think, well, look, I, I had never made the Bunuel connection with High Rise myself, but I can totally see it. And I think one of the great pleasures of watching a lot of films is picking out these threads that run through cinema history, you know, ideas and images that people have come up with, you know, decades and decades and decades ago that are carried through. And actually, um, Mark Cousins' name was mentioned there. Now, he is, his series, uh, The Story of Film, and his book as well, is just wonderful, making these kind of causal chains through cinema, where you can see stuff that Bresson was doing many, many years ago that will be picked up by Martin Scorsese and will be picked up by people who saw Scorsese themselves. And people can end up, you know, shooting a scene in a very similar way or, or, or framing an object in a very similar way to a, a filmmaker that was working 60, 70 years ago without even realising they've been influenced. And the way, the way it always reminds me is that scene in The Devil Wears Prada where Meryl Streep's character, the Anna Wintour stand-in, is, is basically talking about how Anne Hathaway's uh, character's sweater ended up that precise shade of blue. And she says, oh, you know, well, I just bought it from this high street shop. And um, Streep explains how actually, no, you know, this colour was, um, you know, tested and experimented with on the catwalks and it dripped down and dripped down and dripped down until it reaches the high street. But every idea comes from somewhere else. You know, people can't come up with something fresh uh, that's totally uninfluenced by the rest of what they've seen. It it's always kind of stems from somewhere else. And that's totally one of the, the, the big pleasures of binge-watching, particularly binge-watching a lot of very serious auteurs, as this, as this correspondent seems to have done. Quite a list, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. But, uh, but as you say, I mean, everyone influences everyone. I think that, you know, people talk about Tarantino as the most obvious person, or Scorsese to a certain extent, influenced by uh, the films that they saw. I mean, Tarantino, by his video shop days it seems but everyone as you say is influenced by everyone else um okay and uh, number nine we have the divergent series series i'd say i mispronounced that when i was going to go for elegant but uh, the divergent series allegiant yes this is a part one of part three in the same way to the hunger games split mocking jay in two parts to presumably to maximize box office revenue the divergent series has done the same with allegiant you've got allegiant and then there's another one i think called ascendant coming out next year this is a young adult sci-fi series that has never really kind of built up enough of a head of steam to, to take off. They've got a blessed with a terrific leading lady in Charlene Woodley, who is being very underused. You know, every single time this series comes up, I urge people to watch her in Greg Araki's White Bird in the Blizzard, which is this terrific and dreamlike coming-of-age movie that she did, which I think shows her at the height of her powers. Divergent has never really captured that. And also what's particularly odd about this one is it jettisons all of the kind of social allegory that has been building up in the last two films for a completely different plot about um, genetic purity and Jeff Daniels playing this kind of um, Nazi-like Mengele figure out in the desert who is planning to build this perfect society based on um, this particular subtext of uh, perfect people whom Charlene Woodley's character has, has, has come from. Um, it just seems like a squandered opportunity and I think, you know... Ultimately, as well, the source material, unlike The Hunger Games, which is an incredible, punchy, compelling read, uh, the Divergent books just aren't that. 
Mm. At number eight, we have the boy, and I uh, have uh, correspondents here from Rebecca Cradden. Hello, Rebecca. And she says, have you longed to see a movie about a possessed doll? Has nothing filled the void since Chucky? It does start like an advert, doesn't it? Well, then you're in luck and your prayers have been answered. Meet Brahms, the doll, oh, sorry, boy, and his babysitter, Greta. Some of you may recognise her from The Walking Dead and others will recognise her from nowhere else. You get what you pay for with this movie, some scenes that won't scare you because you've seen them in the trailer, some jump scares and the last half hour of What the Hell Am I Watching? Not the worst horror movie I've seen this month, I'd give it a lukewarm recommendation. Thank you, Rebecca. At number seven, London Has Fallen. Yes, which is the uh, spiritually rancid sequel to Olympus Has Fallen, which was a, a film that came out a few years ago with Jared Butler as the US president's chief bodyguard. Uh, that came out at the same time as White House Down. That's right. It was one of these weird Hollywood coincidences where somewhere down the line people have found out, presumably, that this script has been developed. They quite like the sound of it, so they, they do another version of their own. You know, the, the famous one was Armageddon and Deep Impact, where everyone thought Deep Impact was going to be the better film or the more popular film. Uh, but then Armageddon came, came along, I think, a few months later and, um, and, and really wiped the floor with it. Um, this is everything that Olympus Has Fallen did that I liked, which was its kind of cruelty and its nastiness and a real kind of blood under the fingernails, uh, visceral horribleness to the violence just seems much sourer and much less kind of enjoyable this time round. You've got Jared Butler protecting the US president again, who has come to London, uh, where the world's most preposterously coordinated terrorist attack unfolds. Literally 50% of the people living in London are terrorists living undercover. And it's this just this kind of underlying mentality of, you know, there are terrorists everywhere. And we have to kind of root for this murderous xenophobe. Um, Jared Butler's character is just, you know, basically picking people off on the basis of their facial hair and skin colour. And it's it's just totally unappetising and, 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 and nasty in a way that the first film, which was compellingly nasty, just wasn't. Mm. Well, there you go. Uh, number six, we have 10 Cloverfield Lane. And uh, I have correspondence here from uh, Nathan Payne, who says, uh, Dear Robbie and Sanjeev, first of all, hello to Ben Bailey-Smith. I really enjoyed your debut show in the role of Simon. He did really well, didn't he? He did. He did. I've mentioned that. Um, I am Nathan Payne, age 12, S-T-E-M-T-L. 12. I recently went to see 10 Cloverfield Lane. Though I admired the performances, the endless maze of twists and clever build-up of creepiness, I am unable to say that I enjoyed it. I'm a fairly adventurous filmgoer and tend to go to see anything that is 12A that gets good reviews, so I naturally wanted to see this film. My dad said to me before it started, are you sure you're going to be alright with this? And I replied, I'm 12 and it's 12A and also I've seen The Scorch Trials and there are not many 12As more stressful or graphic than that. I think, Sanjeev and Robbie, you can see what is coming. The night after seeing 10 Cloverfield Lane, I had to lie awake doing difficult multiplication to avoid thinking about it. Also, I had to avert my eyes for about a minute when you see the scarred woman begging at the door. Also, I found that the violent scenes involving John Goodman's character added to the threatening, dangerous atmosphere, which made it seem too much. I have seen The Dark Knight, Scorch Trials, Maze Runner, Casino Royale and The Hunger Games, all of which have been controversial, so I'm well versed in the 12A15 boundary. If there are any other 12-plus-year-olds who have had similar experiences, then I think that we can say that this film has snuck over the 12A15 wall, which is usually heavy, heavily guarded by BBFC soldiers and ended up in the wrong film category. Thank you very much, uh, Nathan, age 12. Your comment on that? Yeah, this is one of the fascinating things about the 12A certificate, is that you can, you know, it, it's something that you, violence has to be under a certain level, language has to be under a certain level, and sexuality has to be under a certain level. But when it comes to something like tension and scariness, and the absolute, you know, it's very hard to legislate on that. The key example of this was a few years ago, 
um, the Daniel Radcliffe starring version of The Woman in Black, which um, was, I think, on its first pass, rated 15. And it wasn't a particularly violent film at all. You know, there was no kind of explicit gore or anything like that. And, and, and nothing that would normally make a film a 15 was, was in there. It was just too scary. And the, the BBFC, because obviously Daniel Radcliffe, uh, the distributors, wanted uh, his younger fans to be able to see him in this film. And they said, you know, so what can we do? Uh, to, to to bring the certificate down to 12A? And the answer was, you just have to cut out some of the scariness and make it less tense. So in a film like 10 Cloverfield Lane, where the whole premise of the movie, you've got these three people living in a bunker together after what may or may not have been a world-scarring attack that prevents them from going outside, it's all down to the claustrophobia of the atmosphere and this incredible bubbling tension of what's actually above their head, you know, what's going on out there. And the film very cleverly, I think, teases and teases and teases, making it possible to think, well, nothing's happened or something terrible's happened or, you know, nuclear attack, chemical attack, something more bizarre, as the Cloverfield name might suggest. And it very much teases that out until the last possible moment, at which point there's this, um, which we won't talk about here, but there's, there are certain events that happen outside that, that kind of um, puncture that tension once and for all and bring it to a head. Um, you know, I I very really loved what this film does, and I think it's also it, it has a kind of a the atmosphere of a really great video game where that you know you're walk, when the camera passes into a room, you're sort of checking out what's around. What can Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character possibly use in here? What's what are the potential threats? She's scoping things out, working out how to you know unlock the next door, get some new information that's going to help enlighten her about the situation. And so I can totally see why, even though this is ultimately a film about three people in a shed it can still be as unnerving as that to require you to do, you know, long division or multiplication until the early hours. Difficult multiplication to avoid thinking about stuff. I, I, I avoided thinking... I, I thought about other stuff to avoid doing long multiplication. But uh, thank you for your uh, very well-written uh, email, Nathan. That's great. Thank you very much. At uh, number five, we have My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. Yeah, which I don't think there's very much to say about. It is a cop-out retread of the last film, really. The jokes land with all the elegance of a, a cow being shoved out of a helicopter. I mean, it's just... Um, I think the, the weird thing about this film is that people who have enjoyed it, and we had an item of correspondence on on this subject last week, are people who haven't seen the original film, because perhaps if you aren't familiar with you know, the exact route that it's going to go down, there is something worth seeing here. Um, otherwise, no. Uh, number four, we have Kung Fu Panda. Number three, at, at number three, we have Zootropolis. And um, I've got uh, a couple of uh, notes here about Zootropolis. Um, this is from Ellen Boardman, who says, uh, after hearing Mark's rave review of Zootropolis, I uh, dared to break my strict revision schedule to partake in a family viewing of the film at our local picture house. I'm happy to report that it met all of my expectations. The sloth scene caused the entire screen to erupt in bellyaching laughter, and the introduction of Mr Big had a similar effect. Furthermore, despite initially huffing at the noisy child next to me, even though it was evidently me who was out of place in the theatre, the small being simply added to my enjoyment of the film with his over-exaggerated reactions. The film explores the idea of acceptance in a light-hearted way and was thoroughly entertaining. Top marks from me, and that's from Ellen Boardman's A-Levels pending. And just as a contrast, here's one from Jordan Brown, who says, Zootropolis left me feeling cold and bored. It just felt like they were ramming the message down my throat and it left a sour taste in my mouth. It started so well, but then descended into every metaphor for race, racism they could think of. Which side of the divide are you, Robbie? Well, very, very firmly on the the, the the positive side. I mean, I think the the idea that it's a 
sustained metaphor for racism. I didn't personally feel that. I think it, it invokes racism and it invokes classism as well in order to tell the story about the, you know, the, the fundamental differences between predators and prey and whether it's possible for animals to ever get past that in the same way that you know uh, humans have to overcome their divides. What I love about it is it's incredibly intricately designed and incredibly funny. It's also a very old school noir detective story. It somehow balances both of those things. And it's also, you know, it's a film that I think is fundamentally about the value of difference. You know, the difference in the film is seen to be funny and it seemed to be challenging and it seemed to be beautiful. And that's a, an unusual message for a kid's film when normally these films are about unity and pulling together and everyone kind of ironing out their differences and being the same. So no, I, I really, really admired Zootropolis. Jolly good. At number two, it's Eddie the Eagle. Yeah, which is a sweet and entertaining underdog sports film that knows that's exactly what it is. And I, you know, I'm pleased it's done as well as it has done. I don't think it has that kind of reach out and grab you by the neck, must-see quality of something like Billy Elliot. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's very well put together by Dexter Fletcher. I think Taron Egerton does uh, a, a very thought-through impersonation of Eddie the Eagle, which has worked better. Sorry, for Taron some, who? Taron Egerton, who was... Is, the, that, is it Egerton or Edgerton? Ah, this is Egerton, I think. I think it's Edgerton. Right. Okay. Right. Well, I'll, yeah. defer, we'll I'll, I'll defer to you. It's, we'll arm wrestle. He was the lead in Kingsman, and um, he, you know, he does this very kind of particular impersonation of Eddie the Eagle, which has worked for people who perhaps remember him on screen. For me, it felt a little bit too much of an impression. And uh, then also you have Hugh Jackman as his coach. You know, it's it's perfectly sunny, fun, half-termy kind of entertainment. Uh, a couple of uh, um, emails that we've got. This is from Sam Quentin. Uh, who says, Dear Stand Up and Stand In, having liked the look of the trailer but with mixed reviews ringing in areas, my wife and I went along on an old-fashioned Sunday, Saturday night date to see Eddie the Eagle. Um, I was nervous of Robbie's criticism that Taron Egerton Egerton uh, performance as Eddie went beyond performance and into unkind caricature. I think Robbie was 180 degrees wrong. Edgerton delivers, delivered a really good performance. He perfectly portrays Eddie's slightly naive character and awkward physicality. He does show him as a guileless, as guileless and cheerful, but then Eddie was, or at least appeared to be. The best thing about the performance is that Edgerton shows Eddie... You know I've committed to one now, don't you? Edgerton <laughs> we shows just, we'll Eddie... Power through. <laughs> knew when people were taking the mickey, but never cared what anyone else thought. Eddie said as much in a recent interview. And Edgerton got enough good one-liners to let you know Eddie wasn't stupid. As for the way he juts his chin forward, it's bang on. Have you ever looked at a picture of Eddie? All the best, Sam Quentin. So, um... Let's get to number one. Actually, we'll leave, we'll save the other um, one. Maybe I'll read that in the podcast. Uh, so the uh, top film is Batman versus Superman: Dawn of <gasps> Shock, Justice. Horror. Which you know we did the, the post mortem on the, this last week, and I don't want to go over the same territory. What's interesting now is that you know the, the signs of its opening weekend were it made an enormous amount of money, but the the signs for its um its staying power weren't particularly positive. It got a B cinema score from US Cinema Gores, which is the same as Green Lantern and Catwoman. You know, ultimately not very positive. And since then, it's basically in the course of a week the box office take has dropped by sixty nine percent in the US, sixty eight percent in the UK. So typically for a film where, you know, a major blockbuster where there's big social capital and seeing it early, those films will drop about 50 to 60% from their opening weekend to their second weekend. So this has dropped much, much more sharply than I'm sure Warner Brothers would have wanted. What they're now saying is that they might make less original films in order to consolidate their efforts onto building up this DC franchise and making sure it's a money spinner. Personally, I think that's entirely the wrong approach. You know, I'm sure they're looking across at Disney and saying, well, you know, these guys have got the Marvel franchise and they've got Lucasfilm, which is churning out Star Wars movies and soon, I'm sure, Indiana Jones films too. 
Why can't we do that? Why can't we have a franchise that we can just every year have a new film drop? They'll have looked at the reaction to the Rogue One trailer, you know, the first spin-off Star Wars story film that Gareth Edwards has directed, uh, that went up online yesterday and um, people were instantly incredibly positive about it, thinking, why can't we do that? What Disney have done, though, is not just a kind of a straightforward business practice. They've taken two very peculiar franchises. First of all, Marvel was a total risk when that started. Who cared about Iron Man and Thor, you know, 10 years ago? These were not major characters that were, of, of, um, you know, widely known beyond comic book fans. And with Lucasfilm, you had Star Wars, which was, of course, a massive, very beloved property, but one which had been mistreated for at least 10 years and which fans, there was a lot of goodwill to get that back on track. So, you know, Disney didn't just kind of um, take something that people liked and give them lots of it. They, these were two very, very particular situations and Warner's is not in the same situation if they are going to sweep out making films, I mean, you know, they did um, Mad Max Fury Road last year, of course, which was, although it's part of a franchise, it was in no sense what they're trying to do now. If they're going to sweep films like that out of the picture in order to concentrate on just making this DC thing work, come hell or high water, I'm personally not looking forward to the results. No, I have to say, I mean, I, I went to see this and I, I had very low expectations, actually. And, I, you know, it, um, it wasn't as low as my expectations were. But my big problem is it reminds me of... Um, the Universal films of the 1940s. Universal had all the uh, the monster movies. They had, you know, the, the rights on Frankenstein and uh, the Wolfman and everything. And once they did those films, they then ran out of ideas and they said, right, let's have Wolfman versus Frankenstein and let's mash those up. And then when they ran out of those, they had all of them uh, versus Abbott and Costello. And I think that's where this is heading. It's just, it's going to end up with with, you know, Justice League versus Hail and Pace. And that, <laughs> but you see, I would be excited about that film, so I don't know what that says about me, but... That's where it's going. Well, the, the, you know, there's a difficulty, and I'm not a huge fan of the Avengers films. I think the first one I quite enjoyed because um, uh, we'd been introduced to all the characters, we had all their backstories, and this was an extra adventure. Whereas here, you know, we're, we're having to reintroduce Batman's backstory for no real reason that I can think of. So did your Batman heart case. not just sink when you see the kid coming out of the theatre at this time? Not, not again. again. I mean, you know, but also the way that the film was structured, and it wasn't particularly well structured, was that uh, it was that Ben Affleck's Batman is still grieving over his parents. You know, there was there was nothing in between. I mean, they have his his building come down, but there was no personal relationship that we'd been introduced to that... Um, that allowed us to feel that his pain was coming from that. And so we're given images of him visiting his parents' grave and and then uh, there's a repetition of his... Uh, uh, the, the two mothers' names are the same. I mean, that's that kind of, you know, his mother and Superman's mother uh, have the same name and that comes up. And so, you know, it was it was just very confusing. And also the, the Batman, the styling on Batman, he just looks more like his Lego version now, which is kind of, <laughs> you know, just all stuck together. It's a kind of body armour thing, which doesn't give him any human shape. And maybe that's what they were going for, but... Um, but there you go. Um, I, I've two bits that I wanted to read here, which are both contrasts. Uh, first of all, uh, this is from uh, Carter, Dean, Dean Carter. I uh, just wanted to get weigh in with my opinion of Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Um, having read a wealth of negative, negative criticism and having waited two weeks to finally watch the movie on the IMAX screen, I'm surprised but at the same time totally unafraid to say that I loved every minute of it. I thought it was fun, made sense, both as an experience on its own and as a sequel to Man of Steel, and made the two and a half hours seem a lot shorter. Having experienced the bad press circus for two weeks, I spent most of the movie thinking, maybe it'll get rubbish in a minute. And, well, 
This can't last for much longer. Something silly is bound to happen sooner or later. But I was delighted to find it didn't. And I can't help but thinking think something sinister was behind the bad press this film received. Seriously, what is wrong with this movie? Thank you, Dean. No, there's no conspiracy. I didn't like it. I'm not part of the uh, the press circus. Um, and uh, this one is from uh, AA. That's kind of could be Milne, could be Gill. Uh, who knows? Uh, after seeing B versus S last weekend, I'm having a major rethink of my cinema going habits. My girlfriend and I have two point five years specific worked out what we've been to that we've been to see seven superhero films together at the cinema: the Spider one, the Ant one, the time traveling one, the Nationalist one, the group therapy one, the above average ironic one, and finally the setting up other DC character franchises with endless subplots one. Disappointment after disappointment, many wasted hours, brain cells dying, ears ringing, eyes aching, and the feeling of being voluntarily mugged. I blame Christopher Nolan for setting up an unrealistic, unachievable expectation for superhero films. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore! Enough of the superhero, Steve, from a man at the end of his patience. P.S. B versus S is a pompous, turgid, dreary mess drenched in CGI and with a soundtrack recorded at a shipyard. I think but apart we know, from that, yeah, apart from that, <laughs> fantastic. Well, that's the top ten. Um, what have we got coming up after? Uh, we've got a review of the Huntsman Winter's War, and also your conversation with Emily Blunt, the lovely Emily Blunt. That's right, and that's uh, all coming up ahead. It's Robbie Collin and Sanjeev Baskar in for Simon and Mark on Five Live. Emily Blunt has a new film out this week. It's called The Huntsman, Winter's War. Uh, Robbie, can you give us an idea of what it's about? Yes. OK, so this is picking up four years after Snow White and the Huntsman, which was a fairy tale blockbuster that came out a few summers ago. Um, basically, Emily Blunt was not a character in the original film. There's a, what's called retconning, which is when a new film has to write in a lot of plot lines that kind of explain stuff in the old one in order to justify its own existence. Lots of this goes on in this film. And one part of it, it opens with this prologue where we see that actually Charlize Theron's Queen Ravenna, who was the, the villainess in the first movie, actually has a sister uh, called Freya, who um, I'll, I'll let um, Emily explain it more fully, her character's role, but she and her sister are split up at the start of this film. And her sister goes up to the far frozen north, you might say, uh, to live in this icy castle in a turquoise dress with long blonde hair and all these kind of slightly familiar... Mm, we've seen this before somewhere. Um, then, of course, the magic mirror gets back up to mischief in the present day. Um, Chris Hemsworth character has to stop this mirror falling into Emily Blunt's hands so she can resurrect the evil Queen Ravenna and wreak havoc throughout the kingdom. Well, we'll find out what Robbie thinks of Winter's War after my conversation with Emily Blunt, which follows this clip featuring Emily with Charlie's Theron. I thought I made you strong. How did you draw the weakness out? What did you do? What did you do? I don't have to tell you anything. Oh, oh but you do. You see, you said it yourself. You're something between this world and the mirror. I summoned you out. Now you are bound to me. <gasps> That was a clip from The Huntsman, Winter's War, and I'm delighted to be joined by one of its stars, the very blooming Emily Blunt. <laughs> blooming. For the listeners, you are blooming because you are with... I am with child. Child. I'm with child, yeah. This is your second, obviously. This is my second, How yes. How does it compare to the first one? Is well, it it's weird because I think the first time you go through it, it it's, it's all about you, you know, it's about oh, I, I can get a prenatal massage and I can do some prenatal yoga and read books and rest and nap. And this time around, I, 
I am running around after a toddler. So it's not really, it's not the same relaxing feeling. Um, and I guess you're just more used to being tired um, this time around. But food, food cravings? Bread and butter and eggs. Just really? what, all in I, any form? Or? Just any form, those three things. I don't even really crave sugar. I just want to eat bread all the time. My wife's was, was cheese and Indian pickles. <laughs> and thank goodness she's, it was Indian pickles because we, thank goodness, we yeah. had them in the house. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise. Anyway, Huntsman Winter's War. What can you tell us about it? Is it a prequel, sequel, spin Well, I always feel like this film is more of a standalone film. It could be a fairy tale in its own right. But um, I guess it's an origin story of some of the characters you met in Snow White and the Huntsman. And it's sort of an extension of some of those characters. So it, it is... You meet them um, in their sort of origin form. And then during the course of our film, there's a sort of seven-year gap where you imagine the first film to have taken place and then it veers into a sequel. So it's just groundbreaking stuff, yeah. guys. Prequel, <laughs> it's, sequels. It's both. A prequel and it's a sequel. Both, yeah. It's both, um, yeah. So you play um, Freya. Yes. Um, what can you tell us about Freya? You'd set the scene I play um, Charlize Theron's character, Ravenna, who you meet in the first film, who is a rampaging uh, villainous character. Um, I play her younger sister, who when you originally meet her, she is a very normal girl who is yet to discover her power that seems to be a hereditary thing in their family, that all the women have some kind of uh, power. And she just has simple dreams, simple hopes, just wants to get married, have a child. And um, then something horrific happens to her and she loses a child and and this power is unleashed in her through great loss and great emotion and so she becomes this ice queen hair turns white skin turns white and she she decides then to just kidnap every child in the world and strip love out of their lives so with good intentions of course because she wants to um she wants to prevent them from feeling the kind of loss that she felt from the kind of love that she felt. So she's stripping love out of the world and training these children to become huntsmen, these lethal huntsmen. And that's where Chris Hemsworth's character and Jessica Chastain's character come in, that she, she steals them as children and they and she trains them and hardens them to become these warriors that they do. And um, yeah, so I basically play Chris Hemsworth's mother in this, <laughs> which is fine. But also, I mean, you kind of alluded to it there, which was that actually one of the the most interesting things about uh, your character for me was the fact that you, that there is a reason for why she's not just born evil. No, you and know, I loved that. I loved that because I think usually in a film you're presented with a villain, and you're just you're just told to sort of accept them for being as abhorrent as they are. And in this case, there's this rather empathetic backstory and. And I think I always felt this villain was sort of emotionally rather unhinged. And that was the appeal for me was to play that arc, I think. But also you managed, there's that, there's that weight of uh, the awful stuff that she's been through that yeah. kind of sits there throughout, which, yes. which for me was there all the time, which was, which was great. It was fantastic oh, because it was just very nuanced. And good, so, thank you. Uh, particularly in fairy tales, as you say, you know, you're very much geared to well, there's the good person, there's the yes. bad person, bad yes. stuff happens, deal with it. Yes. It tends to be the moral of the grim fairy tales. <laughs> I, think I think fairy tales are really were, were initially there as a sort of cautionary tale for children. And they're very dark, like profoundly dark at times. And I remember being terrified of fairy tales as a child. I just 
the thought of you know Hansel and Gretel just filled me with complete dread and fear and um, I think nowadays we tend to try and protect our children too much from the the dark stuff that's out there in the world they'll inevitably find out from the internet at some point but um but I think that children especially in the even in the old like Disney films where people lost a parent and lost a and 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 there was a lot of abuse and um these very dark experiences went on and and I think I don't think you should um un underestimate a child's perception of those things and their understanding of it um but this certainly follows suit with a dark fairy tale that has a lot of other layers of morality and good versus evil and where do those boundaries sort of lie and where do, where do they get blurry was it the character was it the project what drew you to it in the first place? it was the character for sure because i don't think i'd ever played an all-out baddie before and in this fantastical world it was even more appealing because i think that there's a heightened reality to play within and you can kind of bleed out from the edges a little bit and and that's really fun i mean charlie's and i had a complete queen off on set and it was so fun it was just sort of effortless and easy and nice atmosphere and I and I I, kn I knew Chris socially so I really loved him and and I think the opportunity to work on a film where there were three real powerhouse female characters is a rare thing and um, it's a rare thing for there to be three female roles in a film let alone ones that are distinct and and layered and nuanced and interesting and empowered and so that was a big appeal for me I know, really like that by the way I think the fact that in many ways the Huntsman character is kind of the love interest I mean yeah he traditionally is in, in big fantasy blockbusters he's the girl he's the girl in this. <laughs> I don't not sure I'd ever say that to his face it's okay he knows <laughs> does he, he oh knows. thank it's goodness okay. yeah. um, but I thought that was really interesting because the relationship between those three women is what really kind of carries this film yeah uh, from beginning to end yeah I think so great. too I think that was the appeal can I ask you um, obviously the, the project that's coming up where we hopefully will discover whether a spoonful of sugar does make the medicine. <laughs> I've heard rumours of this. Is there anything you can tell us about that? I, I mean, can't is really. Is it is it just a rumour? It's is it a rumour? It's without in foundation? the air. Let's say that it's all in the air. In the air, holding an umbrella. <laughs> Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, listen. If it is, that's really exciting, isn't it? Thank you. Yes, uh, it would great. be very exciting. Well, there's been lots of positive to the rumours. Yeah. Uh, there've been oh, well, lots of positive nice. reactions. So that's, that's good. Yeah, because that's some big shoes. Yes. My my wife played um, Scary Poppet, which was the Indian version. <laughs> we did a sketch. And so if you need any kind of reference... Oh, points, I'm definitely going to look I'm for inspiration in that. that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I just wanted to ask you finally, actually, just about... Um, this. You, you know, your kind of trajectory has been quite phenomenal, oh. you know, in sort of just over 10 years. Does that make you as and I'm, again I'm culling from the fact that my wife acts as well. Does it make you? Has it made you feel secure now about acting um, about your profession? Yes, yes. I mean, I think I'm. I mean, it's something I'm completely in love with doing. I enjoy the job immensely, and um, for me, the trajectory never felt sort of meteoric. It was sort of quite a slow, gradual pace, and. I think I've actually been doing it for 15 years now because I started when I was 18. I'm 33 now. So it, it feels, it, it it has happened at a rate that has, um, that has felt comforting rather than, um, and, and steady rather than 
that I've, I've been launched into this world that felt so alien. Um, and it is something that I've become accustomed to doing and I've become accustomed to dealing with all of the bad stuff that comes with the industry as well. Um, Such as? Well, just the exposure and the kind of um, being under a magnifying glass and and um, the, the scrutinizing and all of that stuff that goes on. And, and, and it is a personal job. It's an ex- it is the most personal job is you are being looked at on on how on your personal take on a part or on a choice of film and the way you look within it and how you look on a red carpet to how you look in a movie it's just become very personal the whole industry and so I just that's sort of the bad side of it that is not even that bad it's just you have to find a way of looking at it it's like a bubble you kind of pop your head in and out of so I do see the job as as that that I live a rather dual existence between my life at home with my child and soon to be other child and my husband and and my work life and it's so it's just a it's and the two complement each other and they go hand in hand with each other now um and I see it more as a juggle now that I have children and it's not so much about me anymore and I, I tend to read scripts now <laughs> looking at the scenes that I'm not in like okay well that would be a day off and then that would be a day off. you know it sort of alters your whole way of and where does it shoot and that's really important to me now and um um your the things that that are important to you change very much when you have children. Great, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you, it's such a pleasure. You too. First of the day. Is it the first of the day? You are the first of the day. I am so lucky. You'll be jaded by the. <sighs> You're gonna be so jaded and grumpy <laughs> at the end of the day. That was the lovely Emily Blunt talking to me about the Huntsman. Winter's worn. Here's the equally lovely Robbie to tell us what he made of the film. I love the idea of a queen off. Can I just say from this, from from what Emily mentioned about this, uh, this queen off between her and Charlize Theron's characters on set, I kind of wish that had somehow manifested itself in this film. You know, I'm I'm by no means um, the, the the most the, the, the critic who's most down on this film. Many many people have, have enjoyed this less than I have. But I think one thing that is really lacking is this idea that okay, you have Emily Blunt on set and you have Charlize Theron on set. And they're wearing these ridiculous gowns and silver and gold eyeshadow and they've got magic spells and they're going to just have this kind of big showdown together. And it should be fun. You know, you should be really geared up for it. There should be something almost camp about it, I think. And, you know, if you look at what um, actresses like Eva Green did in the the, um, the 300 sequel, which I want to call 300 Birth of a Nation. I know that's not the title of it. In a way, it kind of... Um, uh, what was it? Dawn of Rise of an Empire. Right? In a way, that kind of works as well. But 300 Rise of an Empire... And even Michelle Pfeiffer in, in, in playing Catwoman in Batman Returns, you know, there's this idea that if you're going to play Wicked, you have to have a little bit of fun with it. And this has actually been a sticking point, not just um, for me in, in The Huntsman Winter's War, but in all of these fairy tale movies that, of course, were commissioned in a big rush after Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland hit so big in 2010. Studios suddenly realised, oh my goodness, we can actually make a film the core demographic of which is not teenage boys and it can still make an absolute fortune. So let's scour around for other possible sources of income and revenue. And and one that they settled on was fairy tale films. And it was made at a time when Twilight was coming up. You know, E1, the distributor, was kind of based their entire business off the success of Twilight, which is terrific. And so um, this idea that blockbusters were going to be made for a new audience, in theory, was very appealing. In practice, it didn't really pay off because... Um, 
In Snow White and the Huntsman, you had Kristen Stewart was cast as Snow White. She was basically just transplanted from Twilight into that film to be moody and sullen and bring across all those kind of Twilighty qualities to the movie. You had this Game of Thrones aesthetic that didn't quite match up with the story particularly well. And also these weird borrowings from anime movies that I'm sure the, the target audience for the, for the original Snow White and the Huntsman film were into, but you had kind of magical stags cantering in from like Miyazaki films and things. And it just didn't really gel. And in practice, it was a really kind of miserable slog. And it shouldn't have been. Um, this new film picks up now. It's four years after, in real world terms, seven years after I stand corrected, in uh, Snow White and the Huntsman terms. And you, Kristen Stewart's character, Snow White herself, is basically sidelined. You have Chris Hemsworth um, as the Huntsman, who is trying to keep the magic mirror out of uh, Queen Freya's clutches um, because she wants to use it to summon back Queen Ravenna, who's Charlize Theron's character. And um, at the start, you have the, as we talked a little bit, you have this prologue, which is very, very, very familiar, basically smacks completely of Frozen. Um, you have two royal sisters. One suffers heartbreak, develops ice magic, flees to the mountains, lives in a giant icicle, wears turquoise. You know, you can't even say, oh, well, we're just borrowing this from the Snow Queen. It's Hans Christian Andersen, because no, you know, Frozen really heavily adapted the Snow Queen. And it's ended up at exactly the same point as the Huntsman Winter's War has done. But thankfully, this story then gets sidelined to Chris Hemsworth's antics in the forest um, with uh, his dwarf companions, who are played by Nick Frost and Rob Brydon, uh, and also a huntswoman. Um, as, uh, as Emily Blunt explained, there is a whole um, society of huntspeople. Uh, Chris Hemsworth is a huntsman. And uh, Jessica Chastain is playing a huntswoman who's called Sarah and who was betrothed to him a long time ago, who re-emerges from the forest to help him. Now... Jessica Chastain is exactly the kind of person, again, in theory, that you want in a film like this. She's, you know, Crimson Peak, A Most Violent Year, Take Shelter, Tree of Life. Almost nothing is beyond her. However, in Winter's War, we discover the one thing that is, and that is a Scottish accent. Now, for some reason, The Huntsman in, in, in the first film was Scottish. Uh, Chris Hemsworth just kind of brazened it out. It was a little bit shrecky, but it worked. And uh, Jessica Chastain tries to do the same. And I mean, this accent is so bad, it's kind of accidentally racist it goes that far and you know if you can deal with it it's not you know this is not a kind of a, a particularly highbrow drama where all that kind of verisimilitude is totally key to the film working but you know it, it, it's like if you think of the princess bride the accents in that film were not particularly great but it doesn't really matter so you can kind of excuse it and you can kind of accept it's, it, it's just part of the fun and part of the context of this big fantasy world and i think you know shaky as the storytelling is and it does kind of shake around all over the place the actual world of the film is very appealing. You know, it's not this tonal mishmash that the first film was. They go much more directly down a straightforward, this is a kind of a Dungeons and Dragons style world, you know, big mossy glades, forests, a lot of rain, the dwarves kind of lumbering around with all this fantastic equipment. And there are some lovely little visual flourishes, like there's a snake with moss growing on its back, which is just a lovely idea that I don't think I've seen anywhere before. And the goblins in the film, which make an appearance halfway through, they steal the mirror and it has to be retrieved from them are kind of like slightly reminded me of the winged monkeys from um, from The Wizard of Oz in that they're these large kind of bulky chimpanzee-like characters that lurk in the trees with these huge horns on their heads. And it just, you know, these little kind of visual flourishes does help to kind of pick up the energy a bit and give, and give you a reason to enjoy being in the world of the film, even if the story being told is not that compelling. It's interesting, the director of the movie is a, a guy called Cedric Nicholas Troyan, who was the special effects supervisor on the first film. This is his first film as director. And it makes total sense that what works about this movie is the richness of the environment. You know, the kind of, the, I think the 3D as well is actually surprisingly well used. It gives this kind of all enveloping quality to the world and it's really sharply achieved. So I liked all that. Another standout person is Sheridan Smith, who turns up as a dwarf maiden halfway through the film. 
um, with a talent for foul language that can only really be described as musical. I mean, I can't even quote any of the stuff she says here, but these incredibly florid and flamboyant swearing um, marathons that she goes on. So if you take it for what it is, I actually quite enjoyed this. I thought it was lighter and funnier and nimbler than the first film. And even if the story is a bit shambolic, it still kind of struck a chord with me just on terms of enjoy, veg out and, you know, savour being in this fancy world. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, there are a few things I want to say about it, but I might save those till after the news. But uh, there is an email we have from Steve Douglas, uh, who says, uh, just got out of the inexplicably Kristen Stewart free sequel to that Snow White film that only made its money back because of the Twilight fan base, as you've said, Robbie. And I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't nearly as bad as the awful trailers suggested. I nearly gave up during the corny first half hour of cliches, recap and exposition. But once they get away from Blunt and Theron's frozen themed perfume advert and Sheridan Smith turns up in a cloud of 12A friendly expletives, it was just fun enough to recapture my attention and build up enough goodwill to get through the final showdown. It's not actually good, of course, but with sufficiently lowered expectations, it can be viewed as a toned-down version of The Hobbit with all of Peter Jackson's strength and excesses ruthlessly hewn away with an axe or impractical antler-handled dagger. Thank you, Steve Douglas. Uh, OK, well, we've still uh, got another hour of film conversation coming up, including these reviews. Yeah, we're talking about Midnight Special, Deepan, Boulevard, The Man Who Knew Infinity and Nasty Baby. And you can still get in touch. Email mayo at bbc.co.uk or text 85058. Uh, before uh, the news, we were talking about uh, the week's big release, I guess. Well, one of the big releases of the week, which is... The most expensive one, I think, without doubt. The Huntsman Winter's War. Winter's War. Um, so I got the impression that you kind of quite liked it. I went with it, yeah. You went, I with, went it. with it. That's but it's after having not on the been, fence, is it? It's after having been disappointed by fairy tale blockbusters previously, you know. And I don't think this is has got it completely right. You know, the the one that I really thought worked was Mirror Mirror that Tarsum Singh did, um, right at the start of this craze, just before um, Snow White and the Huntsman was released. And it was, I think it was critics sort of genuinely, generally responded well to it, but audiences didn't. This was one with Julia Roberts as the Wicked Queen. And it was kind of intensely creative and madcap in a way that the other films haven't been. And, you know, there are ways to adapt these stories in interesting, you know, draw out these weird resonances that people aren't familiar with. This um, A great book by a writer called Angela Carter called The Bloody Chamber kind of draws on old fairy tales and tells them, um, you know, for, for, for older readers, for, you know, teenage adult readers. And so it can be done. It just hasn't really been done yet. Well, for what it's worth, here are my thoughts on on The Huntsman Winter's War. I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's lighter than the first film, which is no bad thing. Uh, That's about all the good things I can really say about it. I mean, I think, you know, the actors are fine. They're all very charismatic screen presences, and I've liked them in other things. I thought uh, Emily Blunt was very good in this, actually. I think she managed to carry a certain amount of... um, you know, gravitas and uh, the the grief-stricken thing that she has to carry through the film, I thought she did rather well. Um, you mentioned uh, Jessica Chastain's accent, which was from the Dick Van Dyke School of uh, <laughs> um, Accent Teaching. Um, but, but did it matter, though? That's the question. It's not, it's not a good accent, but in the context of this story, did it pull you out of it any more than the fact that there are little kind of elfy things dancing around on leaves all the time? Uh, it was in keeping with yeah, little right. elfy things dancing around the leaf because the little elfy things, uh, there was no real rhyme or reason as to when they appeared. Uh, that 
kind of bugged me a bit. I think the rules, any kind of created world, the rules have to be consistent. And the one of the things I, I liked about the Lord of the Rings films or the Harry Potter films is that the rules within the worlds they created were consistent. And I sort of, that's what allowed me to believe in the world. And this was the problem with uh, Batman, Superman, Dodge as well, is that the rules aren't consistent within it. And that kind of uh, throws it up. So here they're not. Powers are used once. This is a problem with the first film I had as well, where um, uh, Charlie Theron's character shapeshifts. She becomes, you know, the prince for one moment, and then she never uses that power again. And uh, similarly in this film, she uses powers once, and one is a retrospective look at a power that she had, which is sort of akin to a, a you know, a, a Jedi mind control thing. And you kind of go, well, if you can do that once, how come you don't do it anywhere else? Yes, right. And so a lot of the, the special powers are used once, and that's not consistent. Um, you know, the first film we had the, these dwarves, which included Bob Hoskins, Ray Winstone... Nick Frost, Eddie Marzan, Toby Jones, and they fought with the Huntsman and they were an integral part of that battle, if you like. And this time around, Nick Frost turns up and uh, the Huntsman's uh, only response is, oh, it's you again. And you go, well, this is, no, this is not now consistent with the, the other dwarves that kind of fought on your side. So that, there's an inconsistency between the films. Do you think they had a smaller budget this time around? And they're like, we can stretch to two, perhaps... Two main dwarfs and two supplementary dwarfs that will come in later. I think, but we can't go the full seven. I think, I think that's where they went. Actually, yeah, they could. And then, in fact, Rob Brydon, Nick Frost, Alexander Roach, Sheridan Smith, I thought were very good in in what they had to do. Um, you know, the creatures that turn up. There's no rhyme or reason for their shape. That kind of annoyed me because that didn't seem to be of that world. That seemed to be from another world. The mirror itself uh, is is inconsistent as well. In the first film, mirror, mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all, hey, it's Snow White, it's Snow White, she's come of age, it's Snow White. In this one, Snow White has kind of like gone off to the equivalent of the Priory, so she's kind of disappeared from the film. And uh, when you get a kind of mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, Snow White doesn't, she's not even mentioned. It's not like she's become a moose, <laughs> kind of like overnight. I mean, it's, you know, that's inconsistent. And there's one thing that, so I was kind of bugged by this. By the time I got to this issue about representation, now there is one black character played by Sope Dirisu, in this, who's uh, as a child is is kidnapped and becomes one of the many huntsmen that Emily Blunt raises. It's one black guy. It's one black actor. And my point is that if you're going to have, if you're going to say the world is multicultural, then let's show it as multicultural. If there is one character there who's a black character and it's meant to be just one, then explain that. You know, even in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, you had one character who came in and they explained that he's the Moor that came over and that's why there's one black guy in England at that time fighting with uh, um, uh, Kevin Costner. And in, in this, there isn't. So I kind of then I then I'm start I'm thinking about the backstory of the black guy and I kind of go what did family just move in did they have a shop did they kind of when he was kidnapped did they run off did, didn't their family come and help did they look for him there's no one else and it's that kind of awful box ticking right exactly it's tokenism and you know I'm sure they're thinking well you know we've kind of we're doing our bit it's better that you just don't then because you know in the Hobbit there weren't any uh, black people in the Hobbit there weren't any black characters and I just figured well that's the world. You know, like mm -hmm. it or lump it, that's the world. With this, there's just one. What I think is really interesting about this is that the studio that is, to my eyes, doing the most to, to tackle this issue head on is Lucasfilm. And this is a company that is basically built on a, a, a sci-fi fantasy movie with possibly, you know, the, the whitest leading man in any one of these films ever, Luke Skywalker. You cannot get whiter than Luke Skywalker. And then now they're actually saying, you know, well, look, if we have this locked in fan base and we can make these films and they will make money, 
let's be a bit experimental with it. You know, let's try. And if you take The Force Awakens, for example, there's nothing about um, Rey and Finn, the two lead characters, that is, you know, neither of them need be a specific gender or a specific racial background, a specific skin colour. Those roles are not written for a particular actor. They're just written as heroes. And the fact that they chose to cast the actors that they did, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, I think is incredibly forward-thinking and, and beneficial because it will get people out of this bizarre mindset where you have to kind of put a finger on someone and say, yes, this person looks like a hero. This is what heroes in these kind of films look like. OK, good. I've said my bit. That's it. That's what I wanted to say. Emily Blunt's very nice. Uh, OK, so on with the reviews and... Um, um possibly a vying for the biggest film of the week, Midnight Special. Yeah, the interesting thing about Midnight Special is, you know, the email came up earlier where someone said they were getting superhero fatigue. You know, they had been to see seven or eight superhero blockbusters, I can't remember the exact number, but over the last few years. And they were slightly frustrated that this was all that cinema was doing. Well, it's not all that cinema was doing. The, the issue is the kind of stuff that blockbusters were doing 30 years ago, 35 years ago, in those kind of Spielberg Amblin days are now being done in independent cinema. And because of advances in special effects technology, you can now tell bigger stories on a smaller budget. And that's exactly what Midnight Special is. This is a new film from a filmmaker called Jeff Nichols. Um, his previous films, Shotgun Stories, Take Shelter and Mud, I've personally felt they've worked to varying degrees. I think Take Shelter is by far and away the best of those three. But together, they make up a really impressive body of work. The, the films tend to be set in the American heartland. They've got a kind of a Mark Twain-ish feeling in that they tend to be about outsiders. There's a lot of Spielberg in there too, in that they, they're also particularly concerned with fatherhood. Now, um, you know, not just Jeff Nichols as well. You've got directors like J.J. Abrams, John Favreau, Gareth Edwards, Rian Johnson. These are all filmmakers of a similar age for whom Spielberg is the wellspring. He was the initial inspiration that got them into cinema. So you can see the Spielberg um, thread going through here. Midnight Special is Jeff Nichols' first sci-fi film and it absolutely fits the pattern of his earlier work, but it also feels like a more contemporary take on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, so you have, at the beginning of the movie, um, a boy has a news report that tells you that a boy has been kidnapped from a religious commune. His name is Alton. He's played by an actor uh, called Jaden Lieberer. And we see him in a motel room with two men. But the mood in the room is less like a kidnap than a rescue. One of the men that's in the room is uh, played by Michael Shannon. He's Roy. And he would appear to be Alton's father. The body language about the scene tells us that he's the father. He's, you know, the, the, the boy Alton clutches around his neck, affectionately buries his head into his shoulder. And the boy is also wearing goggles and headphones, which is so he's obviously being protected from the outside world or perhaps the outside world is being protected from him. It's not clear. There's a lot of mystery at the very start. What we find out very quickly is that two groups of people are very interested in Alton's whereabouts. Um, first of all, the commune from which he has been sprung and secondly, the FBI. And so it's absolutely up to Michael Shannon's character to keep Alton out of harm's way and protected and undercover at all times. However, he's not that kind of kid. He likes getting out of the car and wandering around and talking to people. And we've got a clip here uh, that shows one of those encounters at a petrol station in the middle of nowhere. Are you okay? We'll be there soon. Why are you wearing those goggles, huh? Stop! Stop! He's with me. He's my son. Yeah, well, you ought to watch your kid. Yeah, I got it. Thank you. You doing okay? You cannot leave the van. You hear me? I'm sorry. It's okay. I shouldn't have left you. 
So the question the film sets up is, why is this kid so special? And that's something that is teased out throughout the movie. And I'm going to walk very, very carefully, tiptoe around spoiler territory here, because really it's good to go into this film not knowing particularly much about it. Um, what, what we do know at the very start, though, is that the two groups of people are interested in Alton for the same reason. You know, you have the commune who have been... I mean, there's, there's, there's kind of echoes of the Branch Davidians, you know, from the, the Waco siege back in the, the early 90s, in that they have been stockpiling weapons for a while. They're particularly interested in the things that Alton has been telling them. And the FBI have clocked that they're building up all these weapons and then looked at these sacred texts that Alton has supposedly been relating to them and found out that these texts contain government secrets, that there is no rational explanation for which this boy could have them. So this is why they're both interested in them. At the same point, you have Michael Shannon, who is trying to drive Alton to his birth mother, who's played by Kirsten Dunst, and from there to an undisclosed location so that an undisclosed thing can happen in an undisclosed way. And this, that's, that's really about as much as I can possibly say. Um, the, the, the reason I'm so keen not to is that this is a film that's very much about wondering. You know, we're wondering who Alton is, um, how he got into this situation, and also the nature of various strange things about him. Behind these um, goggles that he's wearing, there seems to be glowing uh, a kind of ethereal blue light. And this blue light comes into play later in the movie in various dramatic ways. But it's clear that he's not exactly like us. And this is absolutely wholeheartedly a Jeff Nichols thing. Now, look, I have to say, this is this film I completely adored. I think the craftsmanship of it is completely meticulous. Every shot is set up with total care. And it plays with the grammar of these kind of films. I mean, if a, a stereotypical way to stage a scene... Say there's a, there's a moment where someone knows too much and they need to be got rid of, they need to, to be shot. Now, there's something like this emerges in, in Midnight Special. Michael Shannon is kind of regretfully pointing the gun at someone. This person, you can see from the expression on their face, they know that the end has come. And so you get the shot, reverse shot of that confrontation. And then uh, Nichols cuts to a city skyline at night. Now, from the grammar of thrillers, what we expect to hear is the gunshot ringing out across the rooftops to tell us the deed has been done. And in every other film with that setup, you get that. And Nichols withholds the gunshot. And this was pointed out to me before I saw the film. And so I was expecting to see this, uh, this thing. And then when it happened, it's just the brilliance of leaving that unresolved. And it's yet another thing niggling away in, in the back of your head. You know, why is this, has this guy died? Has he not died? Has his life been preserved by Michael Shannon? It's setting up all of these mysteries. Now, when it reaches its third act, when Alton gets to his destination and what happens at the destination begins to happen... I think you either go with it or you don't. There is this sort of tsunami of strangeness that washes across the movie and then recedes to leave behind this very kind of sad, fractured reality afterwards. That's about as specific as I can possibly be. And I know people have said to me after seeing, you know, because the film was preview screened a few times, it was at the Berlin Film Festival a few months ago, and people have said that was the point at which I clocked out. For me, that was the point where the film really sunk its claws in. You know, there's a movie that's partly about faith, um, what belief in someone can drive you to do. But it's also um, very much about this sense, I think, that um, a lot of parents have, that their children are almost too... The, the, it's hard to reconcile who their children are, uh, very young children, with how they know the world is. How could these beings possibly exist in this world? You know, they seem too kind of pure and removed and wonderful for the real world. And that struck an intensely emotional chord with me, I have to say. Um, I think that this is what Jeff Nichols does particularly well with fatherhood. Really, 
the archetypal Jeff Nichols scene for me is in Take Shelter, where you have Michael Shannon driving down this country road at night with his family sleeping in the back. He pulls over uh, into Leiby and gets out to watch this lightning storm unfolding in the sky, and he kind of breathes to himself, is anyone seeing this? It's this idea that fatherhood kind of places you in this particularly strange mindset where you don't really know if you're, what you're seeing in the real world is, is how it is or is to do with your intense bond of love with this younger person. So that, for me, is what this sums up very, very well. And I have to say, Michael Shannon is terrific in this. I mean, he has a face that was built for squinting out of a windscreen at midnight, and he does that a lot in this film, and he does it wonderfully. Um, yeah, squint against the uh, squint against the glory. That's right, yeah, um, from, from Hail Caesar, of course, yeah, right. and that's what he does. So this is from Mark Brown, who says, I was lucky enough to say, see a preview of Midnight Special a few weeks ago and what a treat it was. From the incredible powerhouse acting of Michael Chuckled Shannon and the wonderful Jaden Libra to the constant intrigue of the story and its characters, I really love the film. The less you know going into this film, the better. However, the spectacular conclusion to the film left me with my mouth open in awe, which slowly morphed to a smile. I left the film wanting more, and whilst usually that might be a bad thing, in this case, it was the perfect resolution. Reminding me of classics such as Close Encounters, AI, E.T. and others, the film held my interest from start to finish with its constantly growing intrigue and great pacing, perfect score and standout uh, cast. Uh, and hello to Jason. Thank you very much, uh, Mark Brown. Indeed, hello to Jason Isaacs. Um, dear uh, Sanjeev and Robbie, this is from uh, Matt in Rochdale. Uh, the Spielberg comparisons are appropriate, but Midnight Special also shares the same simmering intensity and propensity for outbursts of violence of No Country for Old Men, although the pessimism of that film is thankfully replaced with something much more inspiring. Midnight Special is a film not only about the acceptance of the inevitability of what we cannot control, but the commitment to and the pride taken in what we can control. Um, for Roy, Michael Shannon, this is his drive to get his son to where he needs to be, even though he doesn't know what's going to happen there. Um, some may be frustrated by the somewhat vague resolutions offered, but the fact that they don't really matter, as it turns out, the truth is not out there, but much closer to home instead a very special film indeed. Thank you, Matt in Rochdale. Can I quickly mention uh, Adam Driver as well, who plays a young FBI agent, who I forgot to mention the, the main part of the review, but who is just terrific in this. He is the opposite of your stereotypical FBI agent. He is kind of open-minded and willing to accept who this young boy might be. And it's just a terrific counterintuitive performance. Fantastic. Um, can we do TV movie of the week? Let's. Let's have a list here. Um, so some of the guesswork... Um, the excellent guesswork. Uh, Mike Burtwistle says both Easy A and The Grey fit nicely into the not-great-but-better-than-expected genre of movies. Also, why is Channel 4 showing a Christmas movie in April? And for that, my pick is Die Hard. Uh, Helen Whiteoak says the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, because the film title alone is delicious to say. Uh, Thomas Edwards uh, says it's got to be reanimator, crazy fun to say the least. Uh, Daniel Herbert says uh, went into the grey, expecting a lightweight but fun Liam Neeson punching wolves movie and got a tense, bleak, muscular survival uh, thriller. Uh, I expect junior Dr Colin will choose the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, uh, only for the obligatory Roger Deakins shout-out. Uh, that was Daniel. Adam Leslie says my own pick would be the hypnotically icky peeping Tom. Uh, Jack Miller says, I think Mark will go with The Grey. So what will Robbie go for? Well, look, The Grey is terrific. And as is the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, Mark has 
spoken enough about that film, I think, that people know how great it is. My choice is actually Easy A, which is part of this kind of um, triumvirate of great teen movies that came out maybe about five-ish years ago, uh, along with Mean Girls and Whip It, uh, where you have this star-making performance from Emma Stone. It's kind of very loosely inspired by The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it's just a terrific intelligent, um, you know, deeply smart to its bones teen movie that kind of reclaimed that genre from the American Pie direction in which it was going. Mm. Good. So that's my pick. And I think it's 9pm on Saturday on E4. Uh, very good. Uh, I am going to go with the um, uh, with Die Hard. I think it was a game changer and also Alan Rickman is still missed. That's 10pm Saturday, 9th of April on Channel 4. I've seen it a dozen times, I'm sure. I'll watch it a dozen times again. Uh, but now on to new movies. Yeah, let's talk about Deepan, which is the new film from a uh, French filmmaker called Jacques Audiard. His previous stuff is like Rust and Bone, A Prophet, The Beat That My Heart Skipped. Um, what he does is this very kind of strange balance between gritty realism and heightened dreamlike imagery. So I think he said in an interview a, a while ago that if things were too realistic, they became too boring. And if things were too bizarre and uh, you know intensely felt, they became implausible. And his entire filmmaking career has been about trying to chart a course between both of these things with a, a, a total kind of all-enveloping intensity. That's what he does. And in Deepan, he's done it again. Now, the, the controversy surrounding this film was that last year at the Cannes Film Festival... It was um, in competition for the Palme d'Or, which is the ultimate film festival honour. And uh, people during the festival were talking a lot about um, Carol, the Todd Haynes movie, uh, The Assassin by Ho Shao Shen, which is this incredibly sort of rigorous, cineast dream, and Son of Saul as well, this sensational Holocaust film that's coming out in a few weeks' time. And nobody really expected Deepan to win, but it did. The Coen Brothers jury chose it. I, I wonder possibly as a bit of a, not a compromise choice, but as a film that spoke to a lot of different members rather than being something like The Assassin, which is, you know, for my money, just a total masterpiece, but a really tough going, difficult film that you have to be in the right mindset to watch. So I went into Deep End wondering what could possibly top these three films. And I think, you know, first of all, it is an incredibly timely movie. You've got these three uh, Tamil refugees who pose as uh, a family to secure passage to France from Sri Lanka. Now, Deep End, I'm going to refer to the main character as being called Deepan. It's not actually his name. The actor, Anthony Tassan, Jasutasan, um, is playing this former Tamil tiger who adopts the, per the, the, the um, identity of a man who's been dead for six months in order to have his passport that matches up with um, a wife and a daughter that roughly correspond to the two people that he's trying to secure passage to France with. So there's this idea that in order to, to advance his life, he has to slip into a dead man's shoes in order to get to the other side of the world. And ODR finds this kind of dreamy lyricism in the journey itself in that when they um when they finally arrive in 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 france which starts basically is, is the beginning of the film that passage from uh, across the world you have this wonderful shot of them walking out of the darkness with what look like kind of neon halos suspended above their heads and actually there are novelty hair bows that deepan selling on the streets of paris to you know tourists passers-by uh, people like that but there's this idea that this very banal sight that you see in any busy city which is kind of you know uh, people who are come across immigrants to, to to make money on the streets in you know whatever way possible, he can turn that into this kind of visionary experience, and that's exactly what he does. So Deepan and his family are shipped out to this Paris banlieue, where basically the entire block is under control of this drug dealing gang, and it's run like this totalitarian state. And Yalini, Deepan's wife, uh, is enlisted as a carer for this old man whose son is involved in the drug trade at the 
in the drug trade at the block. And meanwhile, their daughter is sent off to school and Deepan takes a job as a caretaker. And a lot of the film is just about the sheer toughness of getting through every day. So their daughter is how old? Uh, she's nine years old. Right. So she is actually... Her integration into French society, because she's in school, she's often seen translating for Deepan and Yalini, um, is, is much more smooth than, than her notional mother and father, who aren't, of course, her mother and father at all. They're trying to get by in the block, and there's this wonderful moment where they will basically do pretty much anything to make integration easier. And Yalini, at one stage, Deepan suggests, well, why not wear a headscarf? Now, that's nothing to do with her religion. But because there's this expectation that people from that part of the world wear headscarves, she decides to do it just in order to, to pass and in order to have this status in the society. So, of course, headscarves being a massive talking point in France at the moment, it's a really kind of clever inversion of that, where by adopting it, you're kind of slipping into society in, in a way that smooths over the cracks, even if you still end up being um, a, a member of the underclass as a result of doing it, at least you know where you stand. Um, there's this, so for the most part of the film, that's what goes on. Then there's this incredibly strange double ending, which is, you know, like a few films actually out this week, Nasty Baby, which we're going to talk about shortly, and um, also uh, Midnight Special. Two events kind of scream out of nowhere, one of which is this kind of slightly bizarre um, Death Wish style rampage, which ODR stages with total kind of stylishness and and and. and his, again, he makes it kind of dreamlike and he, he has that gritty violence and the dreamlike nature of it as well. Um, and then there's another ending, which is even more bizarre, which could almost be a kind of a hallucination. But I, I won't kind of explain what that is. But it's a very kind of an insecure ending to a film that you think you know where you stand with it. Now, because of that, I would really like to see Deepan again before settling on whether I just merely liked it or, or, or loved it. I have to say it didn't grab me in quite the same way as A Prophet did and Rustin Bone did. But I think this is a film that will perhaps reward a second viewing. I, I, I saw the trailer, actually. I've only seen the trailer, which I thought looked really interesting. And uh, you mentioned that uh, it's the bow ties. The, is it li the lighting up bow ties yes. that he, he sells? Uh, Deepan in Tamil means uh, to light up or to illuminate. Right. So there's, there's an extra little bit of There's an extra layer of, yeah, an extra, extra layer, layer of symbolism in there as well. Um, can we talk about Nasty Baby? Yes, let's. This is the new film from a Chilean director called... Or can we not talk about Nasty Baby, depending well, on... OK, OK. <laughs> Just let me let me put it this way. This is a film that you're not supposed to like. And if that is a massive turn off, which it will be for, I'm sure, 99% well, of uh, you know cinema goers, then rule it out. For me, I, I find this much more intriguing than I think a lot of people will do. It's a new film from a Chilean director called Sebastian Silva, who is, um, this is his kind of specialist mode, supreme awkwardness, irritatingness. He made a film called Magic Magic a few years ago that I really struggled to get through, which was Michael Serra's this kind of obnoxious backpacker. Juno Temple was in it as well. This is the first of his films I've really clicked with. You have this um, coterie of Brooklyn hipsters at the heart of it, played by Kristen Wiig, uh, Tunde Arabimpe, sorry, Tunde Arabimpe from uh, TV on the radio, and Agustin Silva, who's been in a few of Sebastian Silva's films before. They're all very trendy residents of Brooklyn. Um, Freddie, who's played by Agustin Silva, is this conceptual artist working on this performance piece called Nasty Baby, where he will be videoed rolling around on the floor pretending to be a baby. Uh, his uh, his flatmate and partner, Mo, um, is a, a carpenter who's working in this artisanal um, wood shop in the town. And then um, Polly, who's played by Kristen Wiig, is Freddie's best friend. She wants to have a baby with him, but because of various fertility issues, it becomes apparent that Mo is perhaps going to be the, the, the better donor. And uh, here is the moment in which Freddie breaks the news to Mo that he would like him to step up to the, uh, to, 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 to the mark. Oh, baby, I'm sorry. I know, it's, it's okay. I don't want to cry over it. It's just like, uh, so basically, Polly said that um, if you could, uh, 
If you could decide soon whether uh, you want to be the next sperm how, donor. How, how soon? Um, I don't know. She said tonight, but she didn't mean that. She said tonight. Tonight that, that I ask you, not that we tell her. Whatever, it's like, but she, I think she wants to do it before the next ovulation period, which is like within f two weeks. Is that crazy? Well, I mean, is this, why are you feeling so hesitant? It's the I same thing. I feel hesitant. It's not, I'm not, I'm not against it. It's weird. I just don't want I mean, to be it'd be so amazing like, if you could, man. Some people can't. So from that, you get a pretty good idea of the tone of the movie. I mean, it's, at first, it strikes you as being, it's a mumblecore film. This was a film movement that sprung up about 10 years ago. Um, directors like Andrew Bajalski, the Duplass brothers, and uh, actors like Lena Dunham and um, Greta Gerwig came out of this. And it's when it's shot at close quarters, lots of improvisational dialogue, lots of mumbling, as the, the, the genre suggests. Um, and it kind of trickles along in this vein for about an hour. Um, and you find yourself asking, well, what's it for? You know, it's not a particularly good-looking film. It's not particularly funny. It's kind of conversationally funny sometimes, but not beautifully well-written or anything. It's not particularly dramatic and it's not particularly wacky either. So what's it trying to do? But throughout it, you have this undercurrent bubbling away that while they are dealing with their very kind of first-world problems, down the street there is a squat where um, somebody we're, we're given to understand is a, a crack addict is living and is generally this kind of menacing presence on the street. He's called the bishop. He hangs around outside the house and he hurls homophobic abuse um, at Freddie and Moe and also inappropriately approaches Polly at various points. And what the film, I think, is trying to do, and this is the telltale phrase that, you know, really is <laughs> a very difficult film to get on with, but what I think it's trying to do is contrast this desire to create that's being held by these very desperately middle-class people, either create new life or create an artwork, with their total disregard for the well-being of this unpleasant person who lives down the road. And when you can prize a new life as much as they profess to, how can you write off one that's halfway through? Now, the film takes its sweet time for this theme to snap into focus and when it does it requires this enormous cognitive leap in the narrative that I just didn't buy at all however when it gets there it then does some things that are very dramatically interesting and which I think we're both agreed on probably should have been uh, more of the meat of the film because that's when it really kind of sinks its teeth into what it's trying to do. Yes, sort of. I mean, the thing is, that when it first started, it kind of reminded me, um, I mean, that you know, the whole area of uh, wanting to have a child and not being able to have a child has been covered in other films and, and comically very well by the Coen brothers in Raising Arizona. Um, Hannah and her sisters covered it very well with Woody Allen. And at the beginning of this, it kind of, you know, the, the chatty stuff reminded me a little bit of, of sort of Whit Stillman films like Metropolitan. It's kind of like, you know... Yes, very, middle, very urbane. Yeah, very urbane people talking about their everyday lives. And my difficulty with this was I thought all the, the, the performances were very convincing. I believe they were real people. Uh, but the pace of it was it's real people living real life. Now, if I want to do that, I just open my door. I mean, it's, it's not why I go to the cinema. And so, you know, the pace changes and what you're suggesting, which is this uh, philosophical question arises with this big dramatic incident, which is about three quarters of the way through the film. And by that time, I didn't really care. And also, I didn't really buy the change then because it suddenly felt incredibly melodramatic. It felt too big. And, and again, it's my buzzword for this week is consistency. There wasn't any consistency within the actions of the people. I just didn't believe that they then behaved in the way that they did. Yeah, and I think that slipperiness of tone is part of the idea but I think it manifests in useful ways that set you off, you know, set you on guard and you're wondering quite where it's going. But also in other ways, it's perhaps not so intended. I stopped wondering where it was going. I think that was the, that was the difficulty I had with it. Um, I've got a couple of uh, uh, correspondences. Um, 
for something that uh, you spoke, last, spoke about last week, which was Victoria. Yes, uh, this Ch- is the, the German film that's shot in one take over two and a quarter hours. That's right. I mean, it's not really one take. Is it, it is really is one it take. Is it really they actually, one take? Yeah, they, they got up at 4.30 in the morning right. and oh, shot they, consistently through till 6am. They shot this twice, didn't they? Three times, and then they Three. used the second version. Right, yeah. OK. The, the so version used the complete version. is the second full run. Yeah. OK, well, this is uh, from Georgia, who says uh, uh, about Victoria, this was totally amazeballs, finally a realistic portrait of a classical musician. Having trained in that environment myself, I was bowled over by how astute and accurate a picture this was. Victoria was an entirely human, humane and utterly plausible character. Committed, confused, joyous, tortured, determined, passionate, joyous, sensitive and robust. The film showed with absolute clarity how fine the line is between acts of horror and magnificence for those who live on the edge. To quote a much overused cliche, this was adrenaline fueled, but only in a good way. And uh, this is from Ellen Crawford, who says, um, find doctors or locums, if in fact the case this week. Uh, I write with a review fresh out of a viewing of Victoria at Glasgow's glorious GFT. Sadly, there was nothing very glorious about the film itself, apart from the impressive acting I found very little to enjoy in Victoria. All the characters were deeply annoying. Being the only sober person with a bunch of drunks is never fun, not even when they're on film, it seems. Decisions made were frustrating and without any relatable reason, increasing my irritation at each bad choice made and with no one likeable enough to root for in spite of their choices. Yes, the technical aspect was no mean feat, but my... God, it didn't half make the film even more tedious. I would have gladly contributed towards the hiring of a good editor to cut the film down to an hour and a half. That's a really interesting response to the film because for me, those far-fetched choices are completely sold by the form of the film itself in that it's barrelling through its plot in one go and the sheer momentum of it makes you realise, you know, yes, if you're in these situations, you can kind of punch through these normal things that you throw up resistance to, you know, making bad decisions. And you think, yeah, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And before you know it, you are doing something uh, very, very bad indeed. I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, with uh, Birdman, which obviously was, there was a comparison because of the long takes, I mean, the, the momentum of Birdman kind of helped that story, didn't it? Really? Yes, yeah. Uh, and also, it's a nick of time. It's a nick yes, of time. Yes, that's right, that's right. Yes. Johnny Depp, that yeah. was kind of something that was shot in real time. Uh, that didn't, the momentum didn't help. Yes, no, no, that's right. I mean, it's it, it's a heck of a stunt to pull off if you can do it. And the the fact that long takes can now be assembled in the editing suite later means more people are doing it. You know, there's a lot of blockbusters now have got long take sequences. Um, Huntsman Winter's War, I was astonished it didn't really have one. But then, you know, a lot of last year's summer blockbusters, Jurassic World famously had that very swoopy bit where the camera comes in. I mean, of course, that's not really shot in one goal, but it's been pieced together to look like it. Same with Spectre, the opening of Spectre. Yeah, exactly, that exactly. That was six shots. That was six, six, six shots. Six shots, yeah. I'm not going to try to say that again. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think of Boulevard? Yeah, let's talk quickly about Boulevard, which was one of Robin Williams's last films that he made before he died. It's the very last one to receive a UK cinema release. Others included absolutely everything, of course, which you appeared in yourself. I was in that. Uh, Night at the Museum 3 and a few straight-to-DVD comedies that he did. Boulevard is a low-key drama, and I think it's of those films, although Night at the Museum 3 rounded things off very emotionally. I think it's the best of the lot on which to go out. It's it's from a director called Dito Montiel who made a film called A Guide to Recognising Your Saints with Robert Downey Jr. pre-Iron Man, who also spotted Channing Tatum uh, early on, spotted his star quality. And uh, the film is about um, a middle-aged guy called Nolan, played by Robin Williams, um, who is married and very, very deeply closeted. He realised he was gay at a very young age, but never just kind of got around to addressing it in his own life. And here he is, you know, in his 60s, uh, with all of this unaddressed feeling bubbling away under the surface, and he's married, and he's got a house, and he's kind of too secure now in his own life to rock the boat. Um, 
what happens is his father is in a nursing home and as his father's condition worsens, um, he's consistent, he's continually being called out at night to go and visit his father. And one night he decides to drive home along a different route and this takes him past uh, a curb crawling spot and he meets a guy called Leo, uh, played by Roberto Aguirre, who is this street hustler. And basically through a series of um, unlikely coincidences, Leo ends up in the car and they end up driving off to a motel together. And this connection, which is seen as being this totally unpredictable intersecting of these two people's lives, brings all of this undressed feeling bubbling up right over the surface. There's this kind of mixture of fatherly concern and sexual attraction in the relationship that means Nolan finds it very difficult to deal with. Um, also, particularly because Leo is a confidant of his. He can actually be honest with him in a way that he can't be honest with his wife. And we've got a clip here of when his wife finally kind of realises what's going on. She's suspected for a long time that, you know, there's, there's something kind of amiss here that she's not being fully let in on. And uh, this is the moment where it all comes uh, pouring out. Why? Because I can't lie anymore. No more lies. Joy. Is he better than me? It's not that, of course not. Then what? Joy. You wanted to talk, so you're going to give me a goddamn answer. I just did. No, it wasn't good enough. What does he do for you that I don't? It's not that. Well, then what is it? Because I need to know. Does he clean your clothes for you? Does he listen to your stories, your boring stories? Because I don't think he does. Does he tell you that everything's okay, even when it isn't? Because... I am sure he doesn't do that. Joy. Did he put up with your father's demands till they piled up on him and, and clogged his whole goddamn life? My whole goddamn life? Oh, my God. Nolan, the arrogance of you. You're right. Everything you're saying. Don't goddamn accommodate me. I'm sorry. You're right. So. So now what? So. So what? This is this is it now? I don't know what to say. What are you going to do without me? And that's a very melodramatic clip. And it's not, I have to say, representative of the tone of the film overall at all, which is very kind of controlled and subdued. Um, Robin Williams is effectively playing a type here. He's playing the client of a sex worker who wants to rescue them. and But he manages to invest it with a certain subtlety and control and to, to the point that you wish the script had been slightly more fully fleshed out. Um, his, uh, his, his wife, who's played by Kathy Baker... Um, she is so tremendous in the role. Again, you wish there had been more to do there. It just feels slightly schematic in the way it passes through from this crisis to the next crisis. But what it gets very right is this idea of a life sort of falling away, almost like crumbling flower, in that you have this hemorrhaging of money and hemorrhaging of time as he spends more and more time with Leo. And this very complex web of lies that's set up around it. Um, there are stretches of plausibility throughout it. There are coincidences that don't particularly work. But overall, it's a good reminder of, you know, Robin Williams was not just this incredibly eccentric uh, comedian and stuff like Mrs Doubtfire or this open-hearted sentimentalist in films like Goodwill Hunting. You know, he could do small and he could do controlled. And, um, you know, two of my favourite performances of his, World's Greatest Dad and One Hour Photo, this is a good reminder of that kind of stuff. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. And, Robbie, your movie of the week is... Midnight Special. Thanks for listening. Uh, there'll be a few more reviews in the podcast, which will be available shortly. Simon and Mark return next Friday with special guest John Favreau. Next, it's Drive. Well, that was the show. That was the show. That uh, was it. Great. Now, listen, you know, we were talking about uh, um, The Huntsman, colon, Winter's War. Yes. Uh, and uh, we had some discussion, we had a bit of a discussion about accents. Yes. And in particularly, I mean, the, you know, this, they, they've got Scottish accents, which, uh, uh, you know, I assume are very close to your palate. And um, we talked about Jessica Chastain's. We've got a clip of uh, Chris Hemsworth and Jessica Chastain, um, a bit of their dialogue so that uh, listeners can sort of have an insight into what Okay, okay, yeah. Don't take my word for it. Here is the... 
the hard evidence. I know why you're not talking. Do you? Uh, you notice the sparks between me and Mrs. Broman? I don't know what to say, she's my type. Loud and angry. Well, that's what I'm used to, isn't it? Till I'm off, you're sure you'll have a good life together. Aye, aye, we would. But there's a problem. Another woman. A bit taller. Not as pretty, mind you. She sounds far too clever to waste her time with you. Well, I remember this one time we were caught up in a net together. This was a, was a long, long time ago. Are you know the hero of every story you tell? Well, that's because I'm very brave. Which is why I'm going to save you from drowning. Some unpredictable autos around here. You're a right galoot. So are you. <laughs> You're a right galoot. Uh, yeah, that's what we grew up saying right to each other on the streets galoot. of Edinburgh, you know. Aye. You're right galoot. So that's what a Scottish accent sounds like. Apparently so. It's, uh, so go on, uh, you can write both their accents there. Yes, Hemsworth is kind of passable as a comedy turn. Mm-hmm. And Chastain is just, no. I mean, it's like some kind of from the, the, the archives of Jim Davidson's unbroadcastable stuff. Uh, from the 80s, you know, it's it's that bad. Do you know what it reminded me of? Her accent reminded me of, just realised, was in uh, um, Indiana Jones, the third Indiana Jones film. Yes. Uh, there's a bit where uh, Indiana Jones turns up at the Nazi castle and pretends to be a Scottish count who's there to see the tapestries. I'm here to tease the tapestries. And quite rightly, and it was a good bit of scripting, actually, the Nazi guy, butler, who opens the door, he goes, uh, if you are Scottish Count, then I am Mickey Mouse! At which point, um, I think, um, Indiana Jones shoots him. Uh, alas, nothing like that happened to Jessica Chastain in this But the film. thing is, in the context of the film, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's this incredible scene where she's saying she'll... She'll follow the huntsman as far as... I'll, I'll take you as far as the castle, Nathan Moore. I'm like, what's she calling him Nathan Moore for? I thought his name was Eric. And she means nothing more. But the accent <laughs> positions it as Nathan Moore. I think there might be somebody called Nathan Moore in the film that you just missed, Mr. Colin. I that's, think the, that that's the name of the dwarfs. You've got Ori, Dory, Nori, Owen, Glowen and Nathan Moore. <laughs> that's right. Nathan and Moore, they were two separate dwarves, actually. <laughs> she kind of thought they were one. Um, so, yes, people can make up their own minds as to the uh, versatility of uh, Jessica Chastain's accent. So you've seen a couple of films that I haven't this week. Yeah, that's uh, that's a touch of weirdness, isn't it? Um, they were both documentaries, actually. Um, and I thought I'd just kind of mention them briefly. Uh, one was The Last Man on the Moon, which is um, a documentary about Gene Cernan, who was as the title suggests, the last man to actually walk on the moon. And, um, you know, when I think particularly with, with documentaries and cinematic documentaries now, you know, over the, the last few years, we've got used to, obviously, Asif Kabadia's films, uh, Amy and, uh, and Senna, as being films about characters, that the way that he constructs the film, given that it's all kind of um, archive footage, he does it in a way that really draws you in and under the skin of the character and you're kind of drawn into it. And I think the difficulty with this is that outside of some cinematic shots at the beginning, Gene Cernan himself, and we're going to get to know him, but, you know, the story of the Apollo missions and before that the Gemini missions are kind of just as interesting, if not more interesting, than him. And you can't separate the two. And that was part of the difficulty. And I think about, you know, documentaries that I've seen 
uh, recently, like uh, Orion, which I thought was fantastic. Um, you know, a story I didn't know. The Overnighters. Did you ever see that? Which was no, about, I didn't. Which was about fracking in in North Dakota. Again, which which had a twist to it. The act of killing. Again, there was there was a twist within it. And so those kind of stakes become high and they become cinematic. Even Spellbound, which I went to see at the cinema years ago. About yes, right, the Spelling Bee film. Yeah, yeah, and Michael Moore's films, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, have given us a taste for for uh, um, documentaries um, in the cinema. And Last Man on the Moon didn't really do it, and particularly because you've got kind of uh, films based on, you know, that period of history and, and the space race, like The Right Stuff and Apollo 13, that just do it very, very well. That actually coming back to this, it was more like of a telly kind of film uh, than a cinematic one. But also there was a release this week of I Am Belfast, which was made by... Uh, Mark Cousins. Who actually came up earlier in the show where we were talking about the story of film. Did, and he was referred to as Saint Mark Cousins. And um, this was a really interesting film. And in a way, you, you haven't seen this, have you? No, I haven't. No. Uh, so it, he's basically uh, devised a piece about Belfast. It's a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a tone poem, a love letter to Belfast where he lived for 20 years and and then left. And, and in, in a way, it's a kind of extended look at the city its character, a little bit of its history, and, and and has kind of invested a hope for the future. And what's really interesting about it was at the beginning, I mean, it's beautifully shot, so it's kind of mesmeric in the way that something like uh, Koyana Skatsi was for me mm. when I kind of watched that, was there's just these images that kind of wash over you and kind of win you over. But he's also got a, a, a character um, played by Helena Breen who effectively plays Belfast, and we see her in vision. She doesn't speak in vision, but we hear her voice, and she effectively leads you. And there was, um, when you got little kids, and, and I remember there was a, a book that we used to read to my kid when he was very little called Big Mama Made the World. And it was this kind of uh, very maternal figure who took you through the creation of the world in that book. And in this, it's very much about, um, uh, you know, the city. She's the city talking about herself. And doesn't shy away from some of the kind of more difficult uh, aspects of the history, but also, for instance, compares the city to a Rothko or uh, mentions that Van Gogh said that, um, you know, the the, the uh, painting, uh, the famous painting of his was not called uh, Flowers in a Vase, but it was called Study in Colour. So there were shots that depict um, the colour of Belfast, you know, not just the slate grey. And um, being Mark Cousins uh, and his love of film, there's lots of film references uh, that are mentioned throughout the film. Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, Hitchcock, Thelma and Louise, Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, Jacques, which was a French silent film. Um, uh, and all of those are used in it. And I found it utterly beguiling. It, it, in many ways, it's it's written almost as poetry, as conversational poetry. So it reminded me of Under Milk Wood. It had elements of that. And the only time they interview anybody on screen are a couple of characters called character, a couple of characters called Rosie and Maud, who uh, are uh, now kind of uh, you know in their dotage, and one's Catholic and one's Protestant, and they've been friends for fifty years, and their language and their conversation is utterly beguiling. They 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 manage to kind of put more profanity in the two minutes they're on screen than you would find in the entire South South Park movie or in a Tarantino film. And there's something that becomes quite rhythmic and mesmeric about that. I thought it was an absolutely extraordinary film. I was just drawn into it. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. 
Well, I mean, I have to say, I'm an enormous fan of Mark Cousins' stuff. Mm. You know, the story of film, the story of children in film as well, a beautiful documentary he made about um, child appearances um, throughout cinema history. Um, and I will certainly be checking it out. But I believe now it is time for... Collection looking tiny, then have a little peek, because it's time once again for DVD of the Week. Rob Distance says, what a glorious week of 80s horror. Reanimator 2, Creepshow 2, and both Ghoulies are a must for me. They, they are for most men. Uh, at least as a rental. Oh, uh, the films, of course. To buy, though, would have to be Ivan's childhood. Stuart Yates says, I would choose Reanimator 2, a great sequel to the Gorefest original, another relationship test for your would-be partner. Carlos Ferreira says three days of the Condor for me. It's been sitting on my must-watch list for a while, and I hope this is a remastered edition. Jez Garrett says, Ghoulies, 3.9 IMDb rating. Ghoulies 2, 4.2 IMDb rating. Always nice to find one of those rare sequels that are better than the initial film. Martin Chatterton says, Tricky choice, but I'll stick my neck out and state that it won't be Fantastic Four. But the real question is, Robbie Collins, what's your DVD of the week? Can I just say, I love the idea of a film as a relationship test. Was that in regard to Reanimator 2? It was indeed. It's like this kind of weapon of passive aggression that you can bludgeon a prospective partner over the head with and just see if they survive. You know, I mean, my goodness. Anyway, my DVD of the week is uh, Ivan's Childhood, which is the first in a series of Tarkovsky re-releases from Artificial Eye. Um, Tarkovsky, Russian filmmaker whose stuff has been traditionally quite difficult to get a hold of in the UK. So this is the fact that Artificial Eye are collecting this stuff together in a, a really beautiful, pristine new uh, restoration is, is, is a kind of a cinephile dream come true. Ivan's Childhood, if you've not seen Tarkovsky before, is the one to start on because, I mean, this is a guy who went on to make these sprawling, kind of strange sci-fi inflected epics like Stalker and Solaris. But Ivan's Childhood is it's an hour and 35 minutes long. Those films are, you know, almost three. So you can basically work out if Tarkovsky is for you with this film. And it's, um, it, it's set... Uh, during the Second World War, you have this boy, a Soviet kid, who's uh, captured by the Nazis and manages to escape and then uses what he's learned to kind of go back on spy on what's happening. But it's not um, a conventional wartime thriller at all. It's structured around these extraordinary dream sequences with these beautiful kind of buttery long takes that you just want to live in. And, um, you know, obviously I'm a Tarkovsky fan. I think this is a film that will possibly win over more people to the Tarkovsky cause. And the good thing is, if you like this, there are over the next few months many more coming. So last week it was Ran. Yes. This week's it's time. Well, no, no, Ran was the was film the, in cinemas of the week. Oh, I see. Uh, last week's DVD of the week was Yakuza Apocalypse, which I think is, I think it's out on uh, digital download at the moment. I think the DVD and Blu-ray are coming later. That's an amazing world out there, isn't it? Lots to, lots to enjoy, yeah. Lots to force your wife to sit through. Yeah, is it a relationship test? It's, well, um, yes. <laughs> it might be, it might be. OK, now uh, we're coming to the end of the show, but I thought um, we can't let your kind of uh, uh, bassooning past uh, completely pass us by because it's become part of... Well, it was always part of you and it's now become part of us. And we now have the bassoonist's power as well. We, there is a bassoonist's power thing. that has been suggested. Uh, so um, this is kind of one of the uh, most popular pop tunes in history. Uh, but can you tell us where the bassoon comes in, please, Robbie? No, 
Well, there you go, straight away. Which bit is it? The, is it bum 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 There you go, that arpeggio there, that's a bassoon. Has it gone? Nope. Is it the, that's it, yeah. It's this bit, I'm very helpfully pointing when the bassoon is playing, which of course no one can see. Um, it's is that typical of bassoonists? What, acting incompetently? Well, if they kind of like, you know, if they've, you know... I'm just being transported by the music. Was, was that just a kind of bassoonist kind of like arrogance that... <laughs> I, you know, I'm just going to point. The I don't know. Because I don't know. Just imagining. Yep. Yep. Have you played this, by the way? No, I haven't. You know, I, I don't think I was ever quite good enough to get that arpeggio um, quite right. That's that's tricky. It goes up into the upper register, and it's um, you know, you need a pretty um, pretty good embouchure for that, or mouth shape, <laughs> mouth. as you prefer. <laughs> Well, that's it from uh, Robbie, second bassoonist, uh, Colin, and Sanjeev got kicked out of the music rooms by a horrible teacher at school, but still went on to have a number one and uh, has composed for television, Bhaskar. Uh, <laughs> thanks. For... <laughs> that, that, yeah, I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, it'll be Simon and Mark back with us next week, and we'll play out on a bit of uh, the very bassoon-friendly Tears of a Clown. digital and online this is bbc radio 5 live bbc.co.uk slash 5 live